this week on the Back Table Podcast. We're very empathetic to this. It's a very, very difficult time for patients. And you're absolutely right. In the middle of going through all of this, we're, we're telling them, brush your teeth twice a day. And they're just like, what, what is it? Like, I can barely get out of bed. Totally understand that. Totally get it. We want to counsel them to make it as easy on them as possible. So whether it's switching to an electric toothbrush, which is going to take a little less energy, using a water pick, water flosser, we just want them to understand that if their mouth is not taken care of, it's going to affect everything else. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Back Table ENT podcast, where we discuss all things ENT. We bring you the best and brightest in our field with the hope that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT, and I'm here today with my awesome, awesome co-host, partner in crime, Dr. Ashley Agan. How are you today, Ash? Hey, Gopi. Good morning. I'm doing great. Always happy to be across the mic from you. And we've got great guests uh, on the show today. I'll go ahead and introduce them. Today we have Dr. Abhishek Nagaraj and Dr. Anushka Gaglani. Both are practicing dentists with a focus on comprehensive dentistry, from dental implants to cosmetic dentistry. This dynamic duo are also co-CEOs and co-founders of Aereo Dental Group, a multi-practice dental partnership organization that focuses on providing stellar patient experiences through same-day comprehensive care and education, as well as improving care, collaboration, and practice efficiency on the doctor side. And they're here to talk to us today about the role of dentistry in head and neck cancer patients. Welcome to the show, you guys. Thank you for having us. We're glad to be here. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Can you first tell us a little bit about yourselves and your practice? Yeah, so thanks for asking about that. It actually is one of the most exciting things for us. We are a multi-practice group that's focused on keeping dentists at the forefront of dentistry. I know there's a lot of private equity getting into dentistry. For us, it's about keeping those dentists in control. So that's what we do. We bring new dentists in or dentists that have been out for a couple of years and get them some really comprehensive education so we can provide our patients with the best care possible. And I'll add to that. Thanks for this question. Great question, by the way. One of the things that we do, Anushka and I have like this running joke that we create badass GPs, general dentists, over a three-year time frame. So what we do, we ramp them up to become super comprehensive so they can give same-day care to people, respect decisions, people's choices, and all at the same time, giving them a lot of autonomy to be able to do that. So is it like keeping up to date with new technology, new practice patterns for the comprehensive dentist, and then also in terms of like streamlining it in terms of how the patient is receiving care? Yeah, no, absolutely. So what we do is we bring dentists on. We do want to train everybody the same way. And I know, you know, there's so many dental schools out there, they may train people a little bit differently. But for us, it's about standardizing, having the five screenings that we do, one of which is the oral cancer screening that we're going to be talking about today. And definitely technology plays a big role in what we do. There's a lot of different technology out there. We want to make sure we're getting the technology that the studies prove works very well. One of the things that Anushka, you brought up of standardizing care, it's every dentist, obviously people go to dental school or medical school and we come out wanting to do the best thing for our patients. But one of the biggest pieces that's missing right when you come out of dental school or medical school is just the exposure to the volume of patients that we see in the private practice world, right? So standardizing diagnosis, how what that looks like, what tools can we use? And then standardizing care so people can really understand and accept treatment. Those are the two things that we're pretty heavily focused on. 
And if I can add to that, also patient communication. I think that's one of the things coming out of dental school, everyone struggles with the most. It's educating the patient, having them understand what we're talking about and why we're recommending what we're recommending. And are you guys mostly in that role of teaching and training and the business side right now? Or do you still do some of the clinical, like everyday patient care stuff? When you're doing clinical care, we're, we're chair side also. We see patients four days a week and we also mentor doctors in addition to doing that. Of course, we have a great team in place to be able to do that. We have a director of operations who can kind of handle the nitty gritty of the daily when we're chair side. But generally, we tend to have a mentorship call with our doctors every two weeks so we can answer some of their issues, some of their questions that they might have if it's problems with diagnosing a patient or coming up with more complicated treatment plans. So the Aereo group, is it sort of like the dentists maybe in their own private practice, are they joining your dental group or do you provide consultation, mentoring, practice management, guidance? So we actually own all the practices 100%, the two of us. The dentists that work for us are associate doctors. So we kind of take them under our wing straight out of dental school, or like I said, a year or two out of dental school and and teach them the, I, I hate to say the right way, but that's how I feel about it. Also, if I can add to that, I think we used to take on dentists coming out of dental school and like have them spend a year with us, right? That has changed a little bit because a year is just too little for us to be investing the right amount of time. And we're kind of doing them a disservice. When somebody comes on, does a year, and then they're like, oh, I'm going to go look for something else, right? Generally, we are attracting the type of dentists that want to be with us long-term, like a three to five-year period. So that allows us to really invest in them in CE and just continuing mentorship so they can really like ramp up into that awesome super GP is what we call the doctor who can do all comprehensive procedures in-house without having to refer out too much. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I think the patient communication is something that is difficult to learn it all in medical school too. And there's a, a growth curve um, when we start our own practices in otolaryngology as well. But let's let's dive into it. So we wanted to bring you guys on. Traditionally, when I think of the role of dentistry in the head and neck cancer patients, I always think of it like the pre-treatment, pre-radiation eval. We got to make sure they see the dentist for that. Can you kind of tell us when you meet some of our head and neck cancer patients specifically and, you know, how that referrals made to you? Yeah. So actually, we meet patients on all stages of treatment, pre-treatment, during and post. Pre-treatment usually will meet the patient when their physician, their oncologist or whoever it may be is referring them in to get a dental clearance. During treatment, that's the hardest time, of course, as you guys know, is patients come in in pain or whatnot, and it just gets really complicated to treat them at that time, which is why we really love to see the patients pre-radiation. Post-radiation, again, there are some complications, luckily, and not as much as during, but we do see patients in all phases of radiation. Correct. And um, just when it comes to a dental clearance, that's, which is what it's commonly referred to as, right? Whether it's a full-blown dental clearance or a partial dental clearance, that's basically what we'd have to decipher on a case-by-case basis. I think physicians or oncologists prefer full-blown dental clearances before they can start up, but it just depends on where the patient is in their journey of cancer treatment or whatnot. What is dental clearance? Like, what are you doing with dental clearance? You know, we, we think about medical clearance for surgery. And my brother, who's an internist, hates that. He's like, this. it's risk assessment. There's more to it than a yes or no clearance. What does that mean? A dental clearance is generally a clearance where, which, where we're checking for things such as 
any ulcers or things that are bothering the patient from a palliative standpoint, whether it's jagged edges of, on a denture or whether it's sharp edges on a tooth or if there's caries in a patient or if there's any potential opportunistic infections like candidiasis. Those are generally things that we want to eliminate right before they get into treatment. That would be a dental clearance. You know, even things like periodontal treatment, purulence, but you're absolutely right. A lot of time we'll get, a lot of the times we'll get a sheet of paper that says clear this patient for radiation. And it's just so broad. You know, I think that's mm-hmm. one of the things that is important that we're, we wanted to discuss on this podcast too, is kind of getting more to the nitty gritty, the details. What do we need? Do we need to look for periodontal disease? Are we looking for an overall diagnosis of the dental health? Kind of more specificity. And during your evaluation for the patient who's been sent to you for dental clearance, what does that look like? I assume it's kind of maybe similar to like a new patient evaluation for you where you're kind of, you know, doing x-rays and looking at the teeth and asking about their history. What should one expect during that appointment? Yeah, you're absolutely right. We treat the patient just like we would a new patient, um, take a full set of x-rays. We do five screenings. So we do the oral cancer screening, the head and neck, intraoral and extraoral. We do an occlusal screening, a risk assessment. We'll do a periodontal screening and a restorative screening. But of course, in patients who are going to be undergoing radiation or who are undergoing radiation, we are more cognizant that anything that we see is not kind of like a let's wait and see or watch this. It's more of a we have to take care of this before you start radiation. So I think that's the big differing piece there. Yeah, I agree. It's a super proactive approach. If we had to dive deeper into like a periodontal screening, right? Whether there's suppuration, there's pocketing, are these lesions going to affect how they receive treatment when they start that radiation or chemo? When it comes to restorative, any large restorations commonly known as fillings, or are they going to break down during treatment or is it going to go into the pulp and is the patient going to be in pain? These are things that we'll proactively look at. And I think a full dental clearance would mean like an extremely proactive, comprehensive approach. Yeah. A lot of times, you know, when we see a patient that comes in without any comorbidities or any kind of radiation going on, we will tell the patient, this is what you need. And many times patients will say, you know what, I'm going to give it a couple months. How long do I have, et cetera. It's not quite so urgent. But when we know a patient's going to go through radiation for however many months or even years, mm-hmm. kind of time is of the essence, right? We can't really wait and see what will happen in 18 months because they might be in the midst of it. In terms of, let's say you do have a patient with caries and they want to start radiation, what's the time frame between like if you have to do a filling or further treatment workup to when they should be able to start their radiation? Generally for us, we find that at least 14 days to 21 days before they start radiation is when we want to be handling at least minor elective procedures. Major surgical procedures are for at least four to six weeks before they start radiation because we want to give them enough time to heal, especially if it's like a wisdom tooth extraction. We're trying not to do that like just two weeks before because depending on what the person's healing potential is, it takes a lot longer than two weeks. So generally four to six weeks on procedures like that. And for periodontal disease, is that just gum recession that we're looking at? Is that the big concern, gingivitis? And if there is gum recession, do you do fillers or like what are your next steps? And are we worried about that for a person that might need radiation? Sure. Yeah. So periodontal disease, it's not so much recession, although that does play a role in terms of there can be sensitivity, mobility of teeth, et cetera. And of course, radiation, one of the risks is loss of the root structure. So that's definitely a big concern. More importantly, it's the bacteria that are causing this periodontal disease and that calculus buildup 
it, it's an active infection that also, you know, there's many patients where there is purulence. So we really want to treat that, do some sort of gum infection therapy to get rid of that infection and have the patient come in usually after a procedure like that about every three months or every quarter to make sure we are maintaining their oral hygiene during their radiation treatment. So they need to see you pretty much ASAP. I mean, it sounds like they need to be in your office to give enough lead time in case you need to do anything if you want time to heal before radiation. Yeah, for sure. I would say the sooner the better. The more time we have to work with it, the better the result will be. Agreed. And for this evaluation, you mentioned x-rays. Is it usually like Panorex x-rays or CTs or what do you find? Is there something that you do more for this population or is it all the same? A panoramic x-ray, a pantogram, right, is generally preferred because it gives an overall big picture, a panoramic view of the mouth. It also gives us any bony pathologies, intra-bony pathologies that we can see like a dentigerous cyst or something that's associated with a wisdom tooth. It helps us to diagnose that. Plus a full set of bite wing x-rays. Bite wings generally help us to diagnose decay, dental caries in patients and periapicals, which uh, lets us see the roots of the teeth, which can eliminate any infections, periapical radiolucencies that are developing related to the tooth. And so getting into some of the complications that can happen with radiation therapy and, you know, kind of linking to why it's so important to address things beforehand. Can you talk to us about what types of things you see as patients who are either getting actively in the middle of their radiation therapy or maybe they've just finished it and what kinds of things can happen? Yeah, so I think the first thing we see usually is mucositis, right? There's a lot of erythema, xerostomia, especially above 40 grays of radiation is a huge concern. Of course, with xerostomia comes the buffer of saliva is not there. Either the saliva is reduced or it's thickening, especially when the parotid glands are affected. So in cases like that, there's a much higher incidence of caries. Now you let that caries develop, all of a sudden it's going into the pulp. It goes into the pulp. Now you're talking root canal. And if we don't take care of it quickly enough because of that dry mouth, we're having to extract a tooth. And of course, trying to extract a tooth during radiation, we're dealing with osteoradionecrosis, which is, as you guys know, just something we really, really want to avoid. Right. And that's an important point you bring up, Anushka, is we've seen patients with not as many cases, but some patients with medication-related MRONJ, right? Medication-related osteoradionecrosis of the jaw. And it is a really tricky condition to kind of deal with. It's like you can see that they have this non-healing typically happens, at least in our personal experience, at the, um, where the, by the floor of the mouth where the teeth are, closer to the floor of the mouth. And it's just this gaping hole. There's pus coming out. And a lot of times it's just our hands are tied in those type of cases, right? Because then we do have to refer to the oral surgeon and then we have to work with the radiation oncologist, kind of see what a lot of times I've had patients who've actually needed full jaw reconstructions because of that complete jaw replacement. So that gets very tricky in addition to everything that you brought up. Yeah, but I would say on top of like the xerostomia too, there may be trismus, TMD issues. Those are probably the main things that we would notice. Also, candidiasis is something we see a lot of, or oral thrush, the tongue, extremely dry mouth and just burning. We've had patients give burning mouth syndrome, right? That's a big deal. We can definitely get into like what some of the palliative stuff that we can do to help them. Before we move from talking about ORN, can you talk a little bit about how and why that happens? So like if they have diseased teeth, maybe they need to be pulled or addressed before therapy because that decreases the risk of having ORN during or after. How does all that kind of play out and why does that need to be addressed before radiation? 
before radiation, I, I just think it's easiest to handle that, right? Because if there's decay and we handle that before radiation, like especially if there's an extraction, there's good viability, there's good hyperemia, there's good oxygen right before they start. Post radiation, obviously, the blood supply reduces, the oxygen is less within the bone, so it's much harder for people to heal themselves is generally what we have found. So it's mostly about the heal, the ability to heal. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. In terms of tips and tricks, let's say you have a patient that's in the middle of treatment and they're starting to show signs of mucositis. How does that patient, what kind of symptoms do they have? What do you usually notice on your exam and how do you usually treat it? So dry mouth, burning mouth, um, just irritation, dysphagia, going down to their throat. There's a lot of things that it can affect in that sense. Also, I think um, a lot of times patients can have sharp edges on their teeth, jagged dentures, little things that we can look for, right? One thing that I did want to bring up is um, like, especially patients who are in chemo, they're usually on bisphosphonates or bleomycin or methotrexate a lot of times, right? Uh, those patients will also show increased incidences of ORN, which we've talked about. Yeah, generally, I would say those are the those are the main things that we look for is mucositis, dry mouth, candidiasis is another big one. Then we we tend to you know be able to treat that more with nystatin or with oral uh, antifungal rinses in those instances. And for your dry mouth or mucositis, do you do any? Do you ever use any sort of like these compounded mouthwashes that have like a <laughs> smattering of different medications that kind of try to coat and soothe those areas? Do you coat them with Maalox? <laughs> Does that work? The magic mouthwash? What is that? Yeah, you know, magic mouthwash. That's definitely one of the things we can recommend. Um, so another thing for, for xerostomia, for mucositis, is a lot of it, unfortunately, is palliative. It's very, very difficult to actually reverse that during all of this. We would recommend something that stimulates saliva. So something like biotin, which is a lubricant, right? You can get that as a mouthwash. You can get it as a toothpaste. It's just over the counter or lozenges. Also xylitol. Xylitol mm -hmm. is really, really great for anti-cavity. And then fluoride. Definitely, definitely recommend for any patient going through radiation treatment to definitely use a fluoride toothpaste. Maybe even one a dentist prescribes, such as Prevident 5000, which has 5000 parts per million. Very, very effective. Or just a fluoride gel that they can get from their dentist and place on their teeth every day. Absolutely. And in addition, palliative would be like something like an aura gel, just something that can help people be able to chew and eat their food, especially. Those sprays are pretty, those are sometimes their prescription strength, but those benzocaine sprays are more effective than gels because the gels tend to wash away a little bit quickly. We've definitely prescribed some of that to our patients. Yeah, those lozenges, the biotin lozenges seem to be pretty effective. But again, none of these are as effective as we'd hope, maybe two to three hours at a time. Unfortunately, that's the reality that we're living in. Is there like a follow-up that you do with some of these patients? Because mucositis, for some patients, it progresses very quickly. And for some, they end up being admitted. How do you counsel the patients, especially when they come in mild? I feel like sometimes there's red flags, right, when they're pretty severe and you're worried about the ability to tolerate the pain. If there is a super infection that's so bad, you might call the oncologist or have them go to the ER. But for the mild ones that are just starting to kind of present themselves, how do you follow up with these patients? I'm glad you asked that question on counseling. I think patient education is such a big piece of all of this, right? One of the things that we always talk about, number one thing, no spicy foods. I think when people eat, love their, they're like, oh, we love our spicy foods. No, that's going to really hurt them, right? So just keep it mild as much as, you know, yogurts, fruit, stuff like that. 
that's going to really kind of help them with uh, anything that can soothe them down in addition to all those lozenges and mouthwashes that we talked about. And, uh, you know, on top of that, again, when we see that mucositis initially, it's really taking care of that oral hygiene. We really want our patients to come in. I know we we tell patients without any issues to come in biannually. We may want to see a patient undergoing radiation to come in more often, maybe even once a quarter, maybe every couple of months. At-home care, though, is key. It's that brushing twice a day, flossing, using a soft bristle toothbrush because you don't want to cause any irritation. That's really going to be the key. You mentioned a little bit about trismus and those patients. Is there any role in stretching or using stacking tongue blades to try to kind of stretch and keep that mouth opening from just kind of, you know, slowly getting tighter and tighter? Do you have like an exercise worksheet that gives them things to do? (laughs) It's fairly, yes, everything that you guys mentioned with the tongue blade. We generally have a two finger rule. If you're able to put two fingers between your teeth, generally you're opening vertically, vertically like that wide enough. If you can put three, that's great. That means you're really stretching out those masseter muscles around your temporomandibular joint. That seems to work well if they can just practice that. Some warm and cold compresses generally tend to work pretty well for trismus. NSAIDs are okay during radiation, um, especially because they're non-steroidal and uh, they generally seem to help a lot of people. And how many times a day? Like once a day, twice a day? Twice a day is okay. Generally, we tell them as needed. So if that means three times a day, and that's okay. But generally, twice a day seems to help most patients, at least. And if they're saying, oh, it hurts to do that, then you say, well, take your anti-inflammatory, take some NSAIDs, and then just do it. And how long do you have to like stretch for? These are two to three minute exercises that at a time, as many times as you can in a day. The problem is sometimes by the time we see some of these patients, it's a little too late for these little exercises to work. So at that point, we'd want to refer to someone like a functional therapist mm-hmm. or an oral surgeon, right? At some point, it's just too late for that. If they are doing that during radiation, does that, is there a preventative component to it? Like if you can do these stretches and exercises through your radiation, maybe down the road, there'll be less of a chance that you're going to end up with that tight trismus that we see sometimes. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, starting it from the get-go probably will definitely help. Of course, it's not going to be the way that it would be if they weren't undergoing radiation, especially depending on where the radiation is hitting. But yes, we would definitely recommend for a radiation patient undergoing that in the head and neck area to start those exercises from day one. Although I do want to say recently with advent of intensity modulated radiation that you guys know about, less patients have complained about some of these side effects that we have talked about. In the last two to three years, I'm, I've, that's just been my personal experience. Would you agree that that's been? Yeah, definitely. I agree. And, you know, along that line, there's a much lower incidence of osteoradionecrosis because of the newer radiation techniques. Yeah. Therapies. Yeah. What do you do when you have a patient that comes in with an ulcer somewhere in the mouth? How do you usually treat that? How do you follow it? And what if it just stays? What do you do? Great question. The first thing we look for is, is it healing or non-healing? Only one way to find out, we have to put them on a two-week evaluation, re-eval. Generally, all aphthous ulcers, sores should go away within seven to 10 days. If it doesn't go away, then that's when we start to get a little more concerned. At that point, we might refer the patient out to an oral surgeon for a biopsy, an incisional biopsy. We also look for raised white patches, leukoplakic or lichen planus type conditions, which are pre-malignant. Those generally don't wipe off, whereas candidiasis wipes off. Right. So those are little things that we look for. 
just generally, you know, ulcers, even in a healthy patient, if an ulcer is not healing in two weeks, we have that concern. So at that point, that's when we would refer to somebody who's going to take a closer look at it and maybe do a biopsy because it could be additional. Correct. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you just tell them to use something like Oragel or something in the meantime, if they're like, give me something, this hurts so bad? Yeah. So an Oragel or lidocaine spray or even the magic mouthwash that we talked about, those would, again, be just palliative. One more thing that I have found, I personally get a lot of aphthous ulcers. One thing that I have found that I share with my patients is physically to use their finger to clean out the aphthous ulcer because there's a layer that forms that generally speeds up healing by about three to four days, which is pretty incredible. I've shared that. We've shared that with a lot of patients. And sometimes you get good feedback on that saying, hey, yeah, I was able to like minimize the duration of my aphthous ulcer. Do you put anything on your finger like warm salt water? Usually warm water just with your finger and just clean out that layer of on the aphthous ulcer works amazingly well for me. And if it's an aphthous ulcer too, we do utilize lasers like diode lasers. Those tend to help a lot as well Mm -hmm. in speeding up the healing process. So at what point would you consider something like that? I would say that's more in patients that have recurrent ulcers, right? We, We don't necessarily want to do it on a patient that's got an ulcer that's going through radiation. We don't know exactly what it is. It's if they're coming back with ulcer after ulcer and it's healing within two weeks. Well, first of all, we want to figure out like why, aside from the radiation, are they wearing a denture or partial that's irritating? Is there a sharp tooth that's irritating? Get rid of that first. But if they just keep coming in with ulcers and they tend to be healing, just to speed up the healing time, that's when we would kind of look into those modalities of treatment. Yeah, that's a good point. And I think one of sometimes one of the deciphering factors when if we want to use a laser or not is the size of the ulcer too. Whether if it's a major ulcer, then we want to probably, because it's obviously causing them a lot of pain, we want to use that. There is a cut component to that. So some people will outright deny wanting to get that. But the size is sometimes a deciphering factor. In terms of infections, we, you know, see candida. We mentioned that. What other kinds of infections? Do you all see viral infections a lot during this time of treatment in your clinics? That's a good question. Honestly, I, I don't see a whole lot of viral infections. Uh, candidiasis is probably the main one that we see. Do you see any? So I'm trying to think about, I'm sure that there have been viral infections. We're just not the ones to diagnose that necessarily. So at that point, if we if we see anything else, Canada would mainly, be right? a referral. Yeah, for sure. So we, we talked about a little bit of your recommendations as far as the oral hygiene for patients who are undergoing radiation. And so how does your counseling go with those patients? Because I think for cancer patients, there's a lot going on, you know, especially with radiation, they're going five days a week and their life has kind of been flipped upside down. And then now, oh, by the way, you need to make sure that you are rinsing with this and use the special toothpaste and make sure you're flossing How do you counsel patients when they're kind of looking at this mountain of things to do to treat their cancer and kind of get through this with the least fallout with their oral health? Yeah, you know, we're very empathetic to this. It's a very, very difficult time for patients. And you're absolutely right. In the middle of going through all of this, we're, we're telling them, brush your teeth twice a day. And they're just like, what? What is it? Like, I can barely get out of bed. Totally understand that. Totally get it. We want to counsel them to make it as easy on them as possible. So whether it's switching to an electric toothbrush, which is going to take a little less energy, using a water pick, water flosser, we just want them to understand that if their mouth is not taken care of, it's going to affect everything else, right? We all know how oral bacteria can affect the rest of the body. There's so many studies that have been done in the past few years. Plus, again, that that very big risk of ONJ, we just want to make sure that they understand that. And that's really how we counsel them, that this is the time as much as 
it's difficult to mm-hmm. go through this. This is the time that you want to do the best job you've ever done in your life in your oral hygiene and just pre-schedule their appointments to come on in. Yeah. And there's generally, for obvious reasons, there's a big emotional component to this, right? People are very emotional during this time. Just, I think, listening to them, giving them that patient ear and see what they need. Generally, we find that patients will come to us and they're much more receptive to dental treatment during times like these because they want to make sure that they're cured of their cancer and nobody wants cancer, right? So, yeah. yeah. In terms of follow-up visits, like Ash mentioned, they're going daily to radiation, going in and out if they do need chemotherapy. They have a lot of other medical visits. Do y'all do virtual visits in your dentistry practice for some of these patients? Maybe you've seen them the first time around and it's kind of like a symptom check or the lesion is a little bit more interior, maybe on an anterior tongue or in the buccal mucosa, that's a little more interior. Do you ever do virtual for something like this? So in dentistry, you know, virtual can be done. We prefer to avoid it only because sometimes since we also have teeth we're dealing with, since we also have, you know, pulps we're dealing with, we don't necessarily always know if it's a lesion, if it's an ulcer or if it's a periapical issue, if it's a tooth. So we really do like to take that x-ray along with it for the most part. And that requires them really coming in. That being said, if it's like a tongue lesion, right, we're happy to look at a photo and kind of do that virtual consult with them. But for the most part, we prefer that they come in. Yeah, we generally we have six other doctors in our group. Everybody's available all the time to our patients. So if there's, there's truly an emergency, we actually would prefer to see them in person. We're happy to give up our weekends to actually go into the practice. That's an emergency. Yeah, it's very similar to the ENT world where you need to look, you know, you need to be able to look in the ear, or look in the mouth or look in the nose, like what's going on. I mean, sometimes you can kind of get a sense of what's going on just hearing about it, but you prefer to like be able to see it with your own eyes and get that exam. So absolutely. Tell us about patients, for example, who wear dentures, some of your older or your elderly patients. Are there any other special concerns for those patients? Does anything change with the fit of their denture when they're going through radiation or post-radiation or rubbing? Like, do they have to have special things that they have to do? Yeah. So dentures in general, they, they can be very tricky <laughs> as they are, again, even on a healthy patient. When it comes to someone undergoing radiation, that just kind of shoots up exponentially because, of course, the bone may be changing. So those dentures may become ill-fitting. You know, if a patient loses weight or gains weight, obviously in radiation generally loses weight, there's going to be ill-fitting dentures. And we don't want those because we're going to have them keep rubbing on the mucosa. Suddenly you're developing an ulcer and it's not healing. So we would ask patients like that for the most part to kind of keep their dentures out. We'll make sure intermittently that we're adjusting any sharp edges, any areas that are rubbing. And then for at least a minimum of eight hours, so every night, they need to be taking them out. But again, as much as possible, just leave them out. Yeah. And then I'd love to add to that. This is where I think dentists can be super proactive with uh, dentures is we can do something called a soft reline on our denture, where we put a soft layer inside the denture so it acts more as a cushion for them. And the outside edges are softer to their gums and their mucosa. So I think proactively doing soft relines for patients in radiation serves, seems to serve them really, really well. Yeah. And, and depending on how long they're on radiation, we can do that as many times as they need. I wouldn't say as many, but every few months we could potentially do that. Yeah. And that's a good point talking about patients with dentures, because I think sometimes you're thinking about like whether or not a patient needs a dental eval and you could potentially be like, oh, well, they they don't have teeth, so they don't need a dental eval. But it sounds like there would be things to talk about and things to address even in the absence of teeth. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, again, one of the biggest risks to in someone wearing dentures is candidiasis. So now you're adding in that element 
of the radiation and they're wearing their denture all the time, you have the perfect storm right there. And for your oral treatment of oral candidiasis, do you just like the nystatin swish and swallow? Do you have them try to brush any of these lesions off? Do you ever do oral antifungal? Mainly nystatin rinses. I think that seems to work really well. In some cases, we might have to do some systemic clotrimazole or one of those um, drugs, but nystatin seems to work well for most patients. And again, going back to that oral hygiene, right? A lot of patients might forget to brush their tongue. That's one of the areas we really want to make sure that we're getting. So brushing their tongue twice a day when they're brushing their teeth, and then is the nystatin twice a day, two or three times a day? or Typically twice a day for 14 days. And then at that two-week mark, you kind of reassess, and if it's not getting better, then you might escalate. That is correct. Mm -hmm. What about our patients with dental implants? What are the concerns for those patients that might need to go under radiation? And then for us, we'll also see a group, maybe the post-mandible reconstruction with a free flap and maybe implants. For those two groups, what do you guys usually see in your practice in terms of concerns or complications? So Abhishek does a ton of implants. I'm going to let him take this one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Dental implants, I mean, this can be tricky, right? Because patients often spend so much money getting dental implants done. We've seen loss of dental implants, especially after radiation therapy, because their bone quality just went from, their density went from like a high to like a low or soft. And generally we've seen where like patients think the teeth on top of the implants lose and the whole implant just comes out. And that's really because the implant is really relying on osseointegrating with the jawbone. But if the density and the quality of jawbone reduces, the implant can no longer hold on. So that is generally what we've seen. I can't quite say I've seen a lot of patients with full reconstruction of their jaws. I think one patient that I might have seen like five years ago, but generally dental implants, we've seen a ton of patients with that. Is there something you want to add to that? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, putting in implants, flap surgeries, et cetera, those are things that because of the reduced blood supply, oxygen, et cetera, we generally, Mm -hmm. we don't want to, if someone comes in looking for dental implants, obviously during radiation, that would be a big no-no. After radiation, we'd have to see how, you know, we'd have to wait. The longer away from radiation we are, the better in terms of putting in those implants because they're just not going to osseointegrate. They're they're not going to fuse with that bone and they're immediately going to fail. And then I think puts them at a big risk of um, ORN too, so which is the last thing we would want on our hands. So switching gears, can we talk a little bit about the role of the dentist in cancer screening, oral cavity cancer screening? And you you mentioned, you talked a little bit about this earlier, but maybe we can just kind of go a little bit deeper, you know, what that looks like for you guys. Yeah. So as far as oral cancer screening, we actually do it on all of our patients, every new patient, every time we do a recall. And our hygienists are also trained in that. I think that's really key for us. We do visual and tactile. So we'll palpate interorally, extraorally, do that visual examination. There's other technology that can also help with this, like the Velscope, um, if you have heard of that. But the Velscope, the issue is that I think we still prefer visual and tactile because it's got such a false positive on it, especially for patients 40 years and older. Because it just picks up everything, whether it's thermal damage or mechanical irritation. But I think the key is, of course, you know, just doing yeah. that examination every time. Yeah, and it might make sense here for your listeners to expand on what a Wellscope can do. A Wellscope is a blue excitation lamp, which passes through normal tissues. It can just go unimpeded, the blue light. But when there is cancerous tissue or premalignant tissue, there's generally a darker spot in that Wellscope. That's generally how we can tell that there might be an issue, but... To Anushka's point here, after 40s, there are changes in our tissues that can give false positives, right? So generally, I think Velscopes have about a 60 to 62% accuracy. 
So do y'all use it commonly? Like, Do people use it then or... So people do use it. We don't love it for that reason, mm-hmm. um, especially over the age of 40. For some reason, it's like 90 percent false positives. And the last, we don't want to be scaring our patients. So for Card. us, it's mostly visual. Tactile and visual is honestly great. And is your, you had mentioned um, an extra oral head neck screen. Is it pretty much palpation of the neck, the salivary glands? What is that for you guys? That's exactly it. It's um, anywhere from infraorbital down to the neck, thyroid area. We check all of those areas, floor of the mouth, et cetera. Right. Intraoral floor of the mouth is a big one where we were able to put our fingers below the tongue and from outside exorally to feel if there's any hard nodules in between, uh, lymph nodes or any anything that's static or mobile. Yeah. Right. Those are things we look for. And occipital as well, I think is a big one. As we start to kind of round it out in the PD world, I feel like we've done a better job partnering with our dentists in terms of pediatric sleep screens and OSA. For our head neck cancer patients, how can we do better? Like, what do we need to do to build a better relationship with our dentist or what kinds of how do we communicate better? What have you noticed in your practice or what are we not asking? What are we not doing? Like you might see a patient with some new lesion or something. And well, I was just at my ENTs a week ago. Like, does that ever happen? Tell us what we can do better. Yeah, I think the main thing is, I guess, encouraging the patient to go in regularly for dental visits. It's as difficult as it may be. A lot of times we will see patients just disappear for months at a time. And then once everything kind of once they're done with radiation, a few months later, then they'll kind of start to come back in. And a lot of damage has been done. Otherwise, one of the things we'll see is patients coming in with cracked teeth, just causing them a ton of pain. And we're right in the thick of it. And it's we weren't asked to get them a dental clearance beforehand. So if we could avoid those kind of issues, I think it would just make it much easier on the patient, the dentist, and the physician. Yeah, no, well said. I, I also think as dentistry as a profession has done a pretty good job of having a medical protocol. In our experience, sometimes when we get requests from, from the medical side to do a dentistry clearance, it's broad. Right. I think some more specificity where like that profession can actually come up with a dental protocol similar to what dentistry has done with the medical protocol. I think that'll really help bridge the gap. Yeah, I'll give you an example. You know, as an example, periodontal disease, right? Periodontal disease can be mild, moderate, severe. So are we for a patient that's going to undergo radiation? Is the referring physician concerned about mild periodontal disease? Do they think it's going to be okay? Or, you know, are we looking for if there's purulence? That's the only time we really want to treat it. Because the way that we look at it as dentists, it's if it's mild, treat it. It doesn't matter what it is. We want to treat it. But it's that's not maybe necessarily what the physician may be looking for. for. Uh, that's That's a good point. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that our dental health is considered separate from our medical health because <laughs> it's, our, it's all it's all our body. You know, in this in our country, you have to have dental insurance and then medical insurance, and we're not all. And so, I think that has just fundamentally created a little bit of a communication gap because some patients don't have dental insurance, or they have had a gap, or they can only go to certain. You know, and so. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, that can be a barrier because obviously dental health is part of our overall health and it matters, you know, so I think that that makes it kind of tricky. Thank you for mentioning that. You know, we've had, it doesn't happen too often anymore, but we do have those patients that come in, we ask them if they have any medical issues and they say no. And later on, we find out they're on like aspirin every day and they're taking, and I'm like, this stuff matters. It's related. Right. 
And there are those patients that will get upset if we take their blood pressure, which we do at every appointment. I'm like, why are you taking that? This is dental practice. Well, <laughs> so no, thank you for mentioning Yeah, that's a great point, Ashley. I think people generally, because of that messaging with dental insurance and medical insurance, because they haven't been in under one umbrella, people tend to generally dissociate their mouths from the rest of their body, but without understanding that there's a mouth-body connection here. So it's a great point. Yeah, maybe someday, maybe someday we'll all come together in harmony. <laughs> I just have one or two last questions. In terms of during treatment, like how often should the patient be seeing you? Like every four to six weeks? What's a regular check-in for you guys during treatment? I would say at least once a quarter. And of course, it all depends on how they're tracking, right? If there's someone who's having more issues, if they're developing more caries, if they have more issues with mucositis, I'd like to see them more often and no less than once a quarter. But if they're doing pretty decently, maybe every four months, maybe even every six months, but that would be pushing it. And then if I have a patient that has a new cancer diagnosis, what are two or three questions I should ask from a dental perspective? And what are like two things I should check for? And it may be something as simple as loose teeth, toothpaste, bleeding with gums. Like what am I, because I'll be honest, like even as an ENT, I'm not always looking. The mouth, the teeth, everything, it's right here. But again, even my head, sometimes it's so, it's separate, but even though it's not, like I don't always ask those questions. Yeah. So a couple things to really kind of pay attention to, I think, would be looking for any kind of ulcers in the mouth, looking for any, like you said, loose teeth, any kind of cavities, like any holes in the teeth, which, of course, sometimes they don't show up that way. Sometimes we need x-rays to see them. But at least if it's like gross caries, we'd want to know about it right away. Any purulence, whether it's from a tooth, whether it's from the gum tissue. And of course, patients that wear dentures or partial dentures. Any jagged edges or potential opportunistic infections, too, I would add to that. Well, thank you guys so much for taking the time. This has been really informative. Any final pearls you'd like to leave our listeners with? I would say not to wait on seeing a dentist. I think dentists play a huge role in preventing big complications such as osteoradionecrosis of the jaw, which is potentially a life-threatening condition. Just going in for their three-month recall, just being really proactive about their six-month cleanings would probably be my final pearl. Yeah. And to add to that, you know, I was so excited about this because the fact that working together to help improve the life quality of patients, I think is the key here. It's just kind of putting that patient first. If listeners want to learn more about you or find you on social media, where can they reach out or where can they find you guys? So uh, our group on LinkedIn is Aereo Dental Group. We also have an Instagram page. My professional Instagram handle is Dr. Ontoothpreneur. That's very clever. I love that. I'm not very active. I think I have like two posts. I'm not very good at it, but that's where you can find me as well as on LinkedIn. <laughs> and you could find me. My handle is Dr. Dentagram on. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And of course, Anishka mentioned our LinkedIn pages. And then there's also our areodental.com, which is our, our website, our website mm-hmm. where you can find our portfolio practices as well. Fantastic. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Orvijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. 
Administrative support provided by Jamila Kinnebrew. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.